Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week have one thing in common. These are crimes committed against our most vulnerable children and young adults with special needs. Prosecutors are going after three former school employees for manslaughter in the death of a 13-year-old boy with autism. Police say that he was restrained for an hour and a half, in which time he vomited and he soiled himself. The boy's heart finally failed and he died. Prosecutors say this wasn't misguided discipline. It was abuse that led to his death. But first, an Oklahoma man and his wife are charged with killing the man's disabled teenage sister. The couple reportedly hid her body for years despite the strong odor, cashing in on her checks on the victim's social security benefits. Authorities allege the suspects actually even exchanged messages between themselves claiming that the victim was haunting them. We are recording this on Thursday, July 28th of 2022. Our guest today is Josh Ritter, a former prosecutor in the LA District Attorney's Office, now works as a criminal defense attorney, and he has his own podcast here on the channel called Sidebar. Josh, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, always a pleasure. You're a fan favorite based on all the comments on YouTube. Everyone's always so excited when you're here. So everyone should be very excited. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind. Okay, so let's get to our cases. Our first one is out of Norman, Oklahoma, where a husband and wife are charged with killing a family member with special needs. Octavio Sanchez is 35 years old. His wife, Desiree Sanchez, 27, have been charged with first-degree murder and unlawful removal of a dead body. They were charged last week on July 21st, but this murder happened in 2018. They stand accused of murdering the husband's younger sister, Margarita Maggie Sandoval. 
Police believe that Maggie was 18 or 19 at the time of her murder. The couple is accused of hiding her body for years while allegedly cashing in on her social security disability payments and even pandemic stimulus checks. How low do you have to go to not only kill your own sister and your sister with special needs and then continue to cash in on her? Yeah, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel as far as as going low. Yeah, it's as low as a human being can go. It's 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 horrific what they are charged with. Now, this week, a third person has been charged with helping the couple conceal the dead body. 43 year old Miguel Munoz has been charged with accessory to murder. A little bit more on the victim here. So Maggie Sandoval um, is the younger disabled sister of Octavio. According to authorities, she had cognitive abilities of a child. She had been living in a group home in California. Then she went to live with another relative. And then she made her way to Oklahoma to live with her brother, Octavio, and his wife, Desiree. Maggie moved in with them in 2018, in January of 2018. And about a month later, in February of 2018, Maggie reported to police. Now, it's unclear because there were several reports. It could have been from Maggie and Maggie's relatives claiming that the Octavio and his wife were abusing her. So what I'm trying to figure out here, Josh, if there were records of reports of abuse, how is it possible if this happened in 2018 that her body, you know, isn't found until more recently? Like, how does that happen? How does a person just disappear? That that was something I, I was wondering myself too. And at first I thought, I mean, you're right. You know, those many years go by, you would expect people would say, well, I haven't heard from this person. Where are they? And then I thought, well, okay, she's a person with special needs. Perhaps she doesn't communicate as regularly as, you know, other people we might expect. Perhaps she's not on social media. It's not like something that people would notice uh, a difference in her behavior. But then you point out how there had been reports to police. So obviously she's able to communicate enough to say, hey, there's something wrong of what's taking place in the home. And as this story begins to unfold, I, I really hope that we don't find out this is another failure of, of law enforcement or the Department of Child and Family Services, that this person had been making complaints about her treatment in the home and that had not been addressed uh, correctly and that, to the point that maybe a life could have been saved if they had intervened sooner. Well, one thing is absolutely clear is that Maggie would not have had the abilities of, let's say, someone else to disguise their getaway. Do you know what I'm saying? Some people, adults, this is a big problem. When people disappear, police often say, look, they're an adult. Maybe he or she just walked away, was done with this life. And that does happen. People do leave. But I think when you're dealing with someone um, who has such special needs, it's pretty logical to assume that they're not going to have a lot of the abilities to pull that off. Meaning, I don't know, um, did she have bank accounts, credit cards, a cell phone, Do you, you know, all this other stuff to just like take off and start a new life. 
No, absolutely. You're right. I, it, the, the story and that apparently that is kind of one of the stories that they've given to police is that she took out the garbage one day and then we just never saw her again. But you're absolutely right. How is she going to care for herself? Does she even have the means? Does she even have the bank accounts to care for herself? The other, you know, as we're speaking, the other thing I'm thinking about is her her other family members who may have been concerned about her and are eventually are the ones who I guess brought this to the attention of the authorities. I imagine they're speaking to the 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 other two, the the husband and wife that she was living with. I wonder what story they were being handed over those years. I mean, why is it we can't speak to her on the phone? How is she doing? I, I they have to have been communicating for with them in some way for this to drag out as long as it did. Absolutely. And they told the authorities that she literally went out, took the trash and disappeared. OK, first of all, how many people disappear taking the trash out? I'm sorry. That's just like not a huge problem in this country of people disappearing, right. taking the trash out. I'm sure some people do. But really? And then there is no way that other family members would have found that an acceptable answer and saying, well, aren't you looking for her? She right. can't manage on her own. So you really have like a family divided here. And um, I think there may be some failures in the system, clearly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it's police or, um, you know, uh, child and family services. If they if they have oversight over people with special needs who may be of adult age, I mean, clearly yeah. this is someone who needed help and supervision. So it's just, it's appalling that she just like, you know, disappears. And, right. and so that seems to be okay with some people. So there was the complaint that was filed in February and then another complaint was apparently filed in April. And, you know, the authorities now believe Maggie was killed in that time period, that she would have been killed somewhere around February, April of 2018. That's what they're trying to that's based on the last time anybody spoke with her. Which which is even kind of more infuriating from the law enforcement perspective in that she was still making complaints close to her own death or someone was making complaints on her behalf close to her own death. You know, a, a welfare check, you know, can we see how she's doing type of deal? It, it, it's I again, we're going to find out more as this continues to kind of unfold, but it's 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 just tragic that you think that law enforcement was that close to perhaps stopping a murder. And here's the other thing. You know, we know, according to authorities, that her disability checks and stimulus checks were cashed. So how is it possible that not even like a federal investigator could figure this out? If the person, if no one knows where the person is, the person has special needs, but the checks are consistently being cashed. That's like, how does one agency like not talk to the yeah, other agency? A, I hadn't even thought of that, but that is such a clear point. If this person took off after putting out the garbage one night and disappeared, who's cashing the checks? That's, a, that's such a good point. For years, yeah. not just for a month or two, but for years. So I believe that the whole system failed here. Yeah. Everybody failed here. It looks and like it. And we then find out, according to the police, that the body was with this couple the entire time. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> failure. It's really Once sick again, stuff. An another failure. So, of course, Maggie's family began to worry and they contacted authorities. Desiree, she's now been charged reportedly told the Department of Human Services that, you know, hey, 
Maggie took the trash out. We have no idea where she went. And then, according to authorities, they gave different versions of of stories. So when stories start to change, one should be extremely suspicious. So here's the other thing that happened. Apparently, cops believe that Maggie was killed in one apartment. Then the couple moved, took Maggie's body with them, moved to a new apartment, and put Maggie's body that was in a container in the basement of the new apartment building. I mean, putting aside how sick that is and demented, it's also just really odd and curious as to why why did they feel they needed to keep the body with them? Is it that they felt like they couldn't take it anywhere to dispose of it? But the fact that they're moving it, we now believe there's evidence that they moved it from one location to the other along with them. It it just is odd. Yeah, it really is. On May 13th of 2021, so this is last year, Maggie's body was finally discovered in the basement at 715 West Lindsay Street. Police got a tip off. Now, this is very curious because we still don't know who tipped off police. Hello. Um, If that's all it took, somebody should have like tipped off the police with some kind of a tip to get them to look at this. Yeah. Years later. The homeowner of the apartment building, Miguel Munoz, claimed at the time to have no knowledge that there was a body buried in the basement, right? Miguel claimed that he had allowed his friend Octavia to store some items in the basement, apparently was renting an apartment there. According to Munoz, this is fuzzy to me. This doesn't make sense. He called the police on Octavio for trying to get into the house at a point that he was uninvited. So it seems like there was some kind of dispute at some point, something. And remember, it's very possible everybody's lying here. That That's certainly a possibility. Yeah. And it's, it's possible, too, that maybe some parties are panicking, too, you know, because of their involvement in all of this. And they're thinking, well, I got to get to the cops first. And maybe that's what that was all about. But, yeah, I thought that was a confusing uh, hiccup in the story as well. And a lot of times until more information comes out, and we are getting a lot from court records and affidavits, until that information comes out, we may not have a complete picture, but we certainly have enough to fill in some gaps. Investigators discovered her body in a three by four plastic container underneath the stairs in the basement. You know what I'm talking about? It looks like those, you get things at the container store or Target, the bins we all keep storage, all our stuff photos, Christmas decorations. That's where this poor girl was stuffed. The container was wrapped with plastic and packing tape and rope. And when police opened it, it was a horrific, um, horrific scene, uh, an assault on the senses, obviously because of the odor of the decomposing bodies. Just, just horrific, horrific. There was no question that there was a human body in this container. Police knew that. You don't, you know, you don't need an advanced degree for this one. Police say that the homeowner, Miguel Munoz, later confessed to helping the couple hide the body in June of 2019. So then that means we know for sure by June of 2019 that, I mean, she was dead, although we suspect she was dead back in 2018. So... Keep in mind, they move and they move the body with them, according to police. And and it's starting to make sense to why a tipster or whoever it was that clued off police came forward, because this many years, 
three different people now that we know of knowing about this, people people start talking. They just can't help themselves. Yeah. And if there's an odor, that's even a harder one to disguise. Now, according to the court affidavit, Miguel Munoz told investigators that Octavio and his wife, Desiree, killed a child molester. What? First of all, who are they to decide anything about any other human being? And, like, does that mean that because they say that, it then, <laughs> they've done a good deed? This is, yeah, that's, it's, that's it's, twisted. It is. It's, a, it's like a demented kind of justification for why he maybe uh, played a role in this whole thing is that, you know, well, we were doing the right thing at the end of the day. It's really sick. It's sick and absurd. It's ridiculous. He quoted Octavio to the police and he said, quote, this is what Octavio said. Desiree started it and I had to finish it. Miguel allegedly helped Octavio then load Maggie's body into the basement, which means he would have known exactly what was in that box. He knew. He knew back in 2019 what was in, in the basement. So now Miguel, the landlord, has been charged with accessory to murder. On May 14th of 2021, we're jumping back now to when the body was found. Investigators executed a search warrant at the Sanchez residence. This was the other residence. And that's where they uncovered some revealing documents um, about Octavio and his wife, Desiree, that they were the ones receiving the Social Security benefits. So I read into this that there were stubs or financial records or something like that. There was yeah, pretty absolutely. clear. Yeah. During this search, police say that they found a gun in the trash and that because Octavio had a conviction on a former felony, it was against the law for him to have a gun. So they charge him immediately on the gun charge because it's right. That's an easy charge to yeah. to, to detain someone. It's a, it's a way to keep him held while they're obviously trying to do this much larger, much more important investigation. The medical examiner determined that Maggie Sandoval's death was homicide, but has yet to reveal the manner of death. Is that unusual that we have not been told that? Or is it possible? Is it possible they don't know? I think it's possible they don't know. It's possible that, I mean, how many years? Not in, and, and, yeah, it's inside a plastic box, but this isn't like a way to preserve a decomposing body. I imagine that, not to get too graphic, but I imagine that that material has completely, you know, fallen apart and disintegrated that a medical examiner cannot piece it together enough to understand what actually caused her death. But they know from the surrounding circumstances and the fact that she's been hidden and everything else that it's obviously a homicide. She didn't take her own life um, or or an accidental death. They believe it was murder. Uh, but they just there's not enough forensic material there for them to say how the actual murder took place. Police also did a search of the couple's Facebook accounts, and they found some pretty interesting stuff. According to the affidavit, Octavio and Desiree had multiple conversations going back and forth. I always find this interesting. You're married yeah. to the person and you have to chat on, <laughs> on <Right>. Facebook. <laughs> right. Yeah. I thought that okay. was funny, too. It's like, okay, I'm not saying that you don't communicate on Facebook when you're married. It's just of all the things to talk about, this was really stupid if you're trying to cover up a crime. None of this was thought out. All of it appears to be chaotic. So do you think it's possible it could have been an accident? 
I don't think so based on the comments. Not and not the way not the comments and not the way that they behaved afterwards, right? I mean it, if it was a quote unquote accident, it was an accident that they were involved in. That they had a hand in. Yeah, right. Very possible. So in these Facebook messages, they have revealed that Octavio and Desiree were talking about wrapping Maggie's body in plastic and moving it around the house due to the overwhelming smell of her decomposing body. So you're not going to have knowledge of that unless you knew that Maggie was in the box. Yeah. Yeah. Then this is really interesting. The messages start to show a form of paranoia. They believe um, at one point, I guess police are summoned to one of their residences and they immediately think, oh my God, it's because we've got Maggie in a box. And so they're paranoid. They think it's the smell of the body. Well, cops were there for another reason. And if they really were there and within a nose of Maggie's body, shame on them for not picking up on the smell. Shame yeah. on everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It, it also is showing how kind of these were not sophisticated people. I mean, the, the, the fact that they're, like you said, they're having these conversations, they're not really disposing of the body. They're moving it around. Now this, like you said, this paranoia about perhaps they're being haunted. It, it, none of this seems thought through and they do not seem like the most sophisticated people. No, not at all. They, uh, at one point when they, the police are there, apparently, um, you know, Octavio tells Desiree to tell the police that he did everything and then he changes the messages and a later message says to Desiree, if you tell the cops, I will kill you too. Very incriminating. Not funny. And then this to me is um, the most interesting. They claim, as you just referenced, that they were being haunted by Maggie. They thought, and this is in their Facebook messages. One exchange, Octavio says that Maggie is not letting him get into his phone. Like not only they truly believe that her spirit was there haunting them and interfering with their life. Yeah. I pray to God that Maggie's spirit was indeed haunting <laughs> them and haunts them to this day. I hope so, because that would be a little bit of justice. <laughs> Whether true or not, it looks like she is going to get some justice. Yes, yes. And again, you know, uh, there are some things we can't put our fingers on, and maybe it's just their their um, guilty conscience that is, like, yeah. playing tricks on them. But I'm rooting for Maggie in this one and Maggie's <laughs> spirit. That's me. That's a, okay? I'm just going to believe in that because it comforts me. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay? Um so Desiree also reportedly confirmed that she was being haunted by Maggie as well, again, in these Facebook messages. So it's not just like one of them. Now, again, they could have been so paranoid that they think every little thing, like if a shadow moves or something falls off the shelf, it's Maggie. Again. <laughs> you're rooting, you're for, rooting for Maggie. I, I am rooting team, for Maggie. Team Maggie. <laughs> I am team Maggie all the way on this one. So Desiree and Octavio are facing federal charges, most likely on cashing and stealing Maggie's disability checks. So uh, there's just going to be a, a few issues that this couple has got to deal with. Maggie's sister has said that um, the couple just saw Maggie 
as a dollar sign and that she calls the accused, her own family, heartless and wonders how they can sleep at night. Well, I don't think they're sleeping well because yeah. Maggie's taking care of that. So yeah. um, they're not sleeping well. We don't believe that they've entered any pleas yet. This is early on with the charges, especially with uh, new charges this week. Of course, presumed innocent. We'll see how this progresses through the court system. Yeah. Interesting comment by the sister there, too, about this being about money. I wonder if that was the reason they they said they'd care for her to begin with, is they knew she was getting those checks and they just were depositing them even while she was alive, just continued to do it after her death. Very possibly. Very possibly. Um, I'm sure that sister knows a lot more and will be vital to this investigation. Our next case is out of Northern California in El Dorado Hills, where three workers at a school for special needs children have been indicted by a grand jury on manslaughter charges in connection with the death of a 13-year-old boy with autism. This is a horrific case. I am at least a little bit optimistic at how aggressive the district attorney has been, but as we'll see, the sheriff did not share that level of being aggressive in trying to get justice here, which I find very troubling. This all happened in the now-closed Guiding Hands School in El Dorado Hills, which is a suburb of the Sacramento area. Three former employees have been indicted for the 2018 death of 13-year-old Max Benson. The charged are, here's what's interesting, not only are the three employees charged, Josh, but as part of the grand jury indictment, which is separate from the original charges that were filed by the district attorney, now the school has been indicted. Can you indict an institution on criminal charges? Yeah, you can. It's it's rare. It's especially rare in a case like this where it's really the the behavior of of individuals like what did they do that day that caused this tragic death but it might be that in the in the course of this investigation and in the evidence presented at the grand jury that they felt it was kind of a institutional flaw and something that the the you know the school as a body as an institution was aware of and condoned we'll 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 have to find out but it's it is rare but it can happen and so does that make the prosecution that much more difficult to, to um, you know, again, bring charges against an institution. Right. Which is now closed, by the way. So I don't know how that works. Right. It, it It's not going to necessarily make their job um, more difficult, but I wonder if it might keep their their eyes off the ball, as it were, in, in really kind of bringing justice for the victim here in that, you know, now, now part of their case is going to have to include what did the you know, what did the administration know and what did they condone and how many times had this type of similar behavior been reported to the administration? The administration did nothing about it. And it perhaps that's part of their point is that they want to send that message to other uh, schools and institutions that, listen, you're 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 on the hook here if your employees are doing this and you're aware of it and not doing something about it. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's a, a little bit of a political decision as well on the DA's part. Because even if, let's say, they can prosecute the school and let's say the school is found guilty of manslaughter, how do you punish the school, which is now out of business? Right. 
Right. Well, I mean, it would be fines. It would be, you know, removing their 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 ability to practice business, removing whatever kind of certifications. But like you said, they've already shut down. So to an extent, it really is just kind of a, a statement that they're making. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, uh, honest, I'm all for it. Yeah. I'm all for the prosecutor doing this, going out on a limb, pushing the envelope and and asserting um a sense of defending children and keeping them safe. We yeah. saw this when you were last on the program in a case in Australia where uh, a religious group, a fringe religious group, failed to act when a child had diabetes and needed her insulin. And so they've charged all the adults. They've charged, they've charged like 14 people, the parents and the people in the church, pushing the envelope and saying, we're looking for justice for this child and we're pushing we're pushing it. We're going beyond the parents. And I see I see this as an example of that, yeah, of, again, yeah. using every tool possible and saying, ah, I'm looking at the law and I'm looking at my ability to prosecute and defend children and I'm going to push it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you make a really good point about the case out of Australia, too. It's about extending responsibility, too. Yep. Right. You can't just in that case, they were saying, well, we were just bystanders. No, that's not going to fly. And in this case, I imagine the administration will say, well, listen, you know, we weren't the people in the room. We didn't we didn't restrain him. The the school didn't restrain him. And the, the DA say, no, that's that doesn't fly. You have a responsibility. You knew this kind of behavior was taking place. You didn't take steps to stop it. And yeah, if even if it is just a statement uh, about what they will and will not tolerate in their community, maybe that's good enough to bring the prosecution. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate, again, pushing the envelope and expanding powers to defend children and reminding everyone of everyone's responsibility to keep children safe. So the charged here are the former principal, Starane Myers, administrator Cindy Keller, and teacher Kimberly Woolwind. They were indicted on July 15th of 2022, this month, and each one has been charged with involuntary manslaughter. The student, Max Benson, died after allegedly being restrained and held face down for about an hour and 45 minutes, according to the Sacramento County Superior Court records. No, just no, no, no. No. Guiding Hand School was a private school that had about 130 students that focused on children with disabilities from 22 public school districts in the Sacramento area. The school had operated for 25 years until it was really forced to close down in 2019 when it lost its certification, its licensing following the death of Max. Now, This all happened on November 28th of 2018. So both our cases today stem from 2018, but we are seeing justice or the attempted justice many years later. Max was allegedly restrained after he spit at another student. That appears to be Max's crime here. Teachers report that Max, even though he was only 13 years old, was was a strong young man that he was six feet tall and 280 pounds so he was you know he was a strong young man and that he allegedly became violent so first the teacher began restraining max 
She claims that her restraint intervention was to prevent the boy from injuring staff or other students. That may very well be the initial reasons for uh, some form of restraint. Right, right. I Maybe mean, you, for a few seconds, a minute, just to calm everybody down. Yeah. No, you, you, you're, 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 you're laying out what perhaps will be the defense's arguments in this, right? That you have a very large young man who's dealing with some mental disabilities who is uh you know behaving violently and maybe there's a need to restrain him but as you already highlighted an hour and 45 minutes is where you're going to see the problem and and that's where you're getting involuntary manslaughter that's that because that is demonstrating a clear indifference to his safety and well-being and that's why this is in a criminal a criminal court rather than in a civil court. Although it's in a civil court too as well, I understand. Right. I understand that Max's parents have filed a lawsuit. So it, it you know, uh, I think most people, especially um, teachers of special ed students um, and parents with children of special needs who cannot always control their emotions or regulate their emotions and reactions, it is, of course, always a challenge but it's it's about you know helping the child in the most humane way yeah. for the child to remain safe and for the other children and staff to remain safe but yeah. in a humane way yeah because yeah. obviously if max could control himself he would have yeah if if it started to appear that it was getting uh it was escalating the danger was escalating call 911 yeah Call nine one one, you know. Call the parents. I mean, obviously, they're not going to get there as fast as paramedics or an ambulance. You know, call call for help. Excellent Bring in point. the authorities. Bring Excellent in the authorities. Point. Because on top of that, we've even seen cases where people who are trained have have people have died in their custody. Right? People, law enforcement officers who are trained to restrain someone have had people die in their watch. So why are you having this teacher do this for an hour and 45 minutes? You're absolutely right. If she needs to protect herself, we all can kind of wrap our heads around that. But why the school uh, security wasn't called or why the police weren't called within that hour and 45 minutes is probably why we're we're looking at an indictment here. Mm-hmm. The teacher allegedly restrained the boy on the floor, holding Max's upper body while another teacher held his legs. You know, I suppose initially that's possible, and there may have been a way to do that without further harming anyone. But here's the problem. You're holding Max down for an extended period of time, and he is obviously scared and may not be able to process what is happening, which is very frightening, which could there be scaring him even more. And so while this is going on, he vomited and he urinated while he's being restrained in this hour and a half. Yeah. There's nothing humane about that. No. And it's signs of distress and it's signs of something medically wrong with him and their indifference to that. The prosecution will argue. He's scared out of his mind. Right. The prosecution's going to argue their indifference to that is why, why you need to find them criminally culpable. So apparently during this restraint, he aspirated because of the vomit went into cardiac arrest. This is according to the medical report. 
A lawsuit filed by Max's family alleges that the employees of Guiding Hand School waited, this is what they allege, waited 25 minutes after Max was unconscious to call paramedics. What in the world is going on? So what is that? Like a minute and, you know, an hour and five or 10 minutes into Max's restraint? Then he passes out and... They delay because in that time period could have saved right. Max's life. Right. It's so sad. It's just so un. So it, it's not even one of those things where you're you have clearer eyes in retrospect. I can't imagine. You know, like you said, minutes are passing by that any one of them could have turned to each other and said, "We need to call paramedics or we need to call authorities. We need to." This isn't like, you know, instant they're they're making decisions off of their hip and they, they're acting quickly. We can all kind of understand how the mistakes might be made. But over the course of an hour and a half or more and no one's deciding to make the right decision here, it's just so tragic that this easily could have been avoided. And if they were fearful that maybe charges would be brought against them because now Max is unconscious because of their actions and that they would get into trouble and the school would get into trouble. Here's the thing. If they had called an ambulance earlier when this first happened, yeah, maybe they would have been charged. But I don't think that they would have been charged with manslaughter if Max didn't die. Correct. Correct. So their calculations were completely off. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they were going to get into trouble because maybe they were doing something wrong. But never to this extent, if Max had survived. Right. So after Max became unresponsive, supposedly the teacher did CPR until medical responders arrived. Probably true. Max was transported to Mercy Folsom in critical condition. And then later he was moved to UC Davis, which is the much bigger medical facility teaching hospital up there. Max passed away two days later from these injuries. So tragic. So, so, you know, I, I, I feel for these teachers to some extent that they were dealing with a situation they were not properly, probably equipped for or trained for. But like you point out, you know, at some point, some of their actions, allegedly, we're going to find out, but some of their actions turned turn toward callous or cowardly, or they were only thinking of their own well-being. Um, and it, it it's just sad because it it looks like in retrospect, there are many things they could have done to avoid this. And they, I, I can believe that they didn't mean to kill Max. Right. I don't think you go into this line of work, which is both very rewarding and very challenging, unless you love children and you have a gift for working with special needs children. My best friend was a special ed educator. You know, and she'll always she always says to this day, she'll say, that was my favorite class. They those kids, they were my favorites more than any other group of children I've ever taught in my life. So, you know, I I, I have to believe in my heart that they didn't intend for this, which is probably right. why it's involuntary manslaughter. But I'm sorry, at the end of the day, a life has been lost now. Yeah. No, it's sad. It's sad all around. So here's where I start to get even more annoyed. The Department of Education said that staff violated school code by restraining the boy and that the agency didn't know about the boy's death until after officials visited the school unannounced. Well, I'm sure they showed up for a reason. 
Um, hello, I don't believe in coincidence. Yeah. Okay, whatever, Department of Ed, cover your butts. Initial investigators from the California Department of Education and the local sheriff's department concluded, this is when my blood boils, that there was no evidence of foul play or criminal intent. Done. We're, we're done here. The sheriff right. said, we're done here. Yeah. Nothing more to do here. Yeah. I'm just glad the district attorney disagreed. Which is funny, right? Because usually they follow the lead of the of the investigating agency, right? Okay, mm-hmm. sheriff's department said no wrong, no no evidence of foul play. What is there or criminal intent? Now right. I, I understand that criminal intent, um, probably not in in the in killing Max, but there could be criminal intent in cover up. Sure. So there could be some criminal intent here worth investigating. So the sheriff, okay, thank goodness, was overruled by the district attorney in this case. The Department of Education revoked the school's state certification on December 5th, 2018, same same year that Max died. That was essentially a week later. They prohibited new students from being enrolled at Guiding Hands, but they permitted the school to continue to operate with the children they had. In their report, the California Department of Education stated, quote, evidence supports a finding that GHS staff's actions were harmful to the health, welfare, and safety of an individual with exceptional needs. Yes, I think that's stating the obvious. The California Board of Education cited multiple violations regarding the use of restraints on students. This is what you were suspecting, Josh. They found that emergency intervention techniques were being used with excessive force and for long durations. So according to this investigation, this was not the first time or for, you know, more than a few minutes. They further stated, this is the Board of Education for the state of California, they further stated that these emergency intervention techniques were being used even when there were other means of intervention available. So that would establish, allegedly, a pattern. Yeah. And who's training them on these intervention techniques? That's what I want to know. I mean, that what does that mean, intervention technique? Like you said, law enforcement gets training on this. Does a special education teacher? I don't know. I would hope so, but I don't know the answers to that. And I think both the civil lawsuit and the criminal case will hopefully reveal a lot more about what was really going on there. So the school was allowed to operate with the students that they had uh, for another year until January of 2019. Well, actually, it wasn't a full year. Um, The California Board of Education announced that it would fully revoke Um, the school certification, this left the parents of the children attending the school with a huge problem about where to go. As if you know anyone with a child with special needs, this is among one of the most difficult things that a parent faces is where to safely enroll your child in school. Yeah. It's, it's horrific, you know, and I was, was trying to find a case that I covered years ago Um, at the NBC station here in Los Angeles, the mother of a special needs child reached out to me and she was very upset because her boy was being kept in a closet in the school, in a dark closet in the school. And she was very upset about it. And nobody, she said, was taking her seriously, not the board of education, not the school, not anyone. And I'm like, I'm on it. Yeah, I'm on it. And so um, I hounded the school and school district 
I insisted, which I could only do based on their permission to let me on school grounds because I can't just force my way into a school. But eventually I persisted, got into that school because I said, I want to see this closet. Yeah, And um, got in there. It is a closet, you know, and their idea was it was their version of a timeout. Now, I get a timeout. I do. But the problem is you put a child with special needs in a closet. You turn the lights off. That may not really calm them down. That may really scare them. Yeah. So it took doing a story like that to push this case to get attention from the Board of Education and from the school and the principal to force a change in policy, to acknowledge what they were doing, because otherwise they were just going to let this mom who's got her hands full just kind of just out there, just just let her be, right? And that's that's what had me, I was outraged by what was done to the child. But I was outraged that a parent who was asking for help and trying to keep her child safe and protected is being treated this way. Yeah. And that is the last thing she needs. And, and how many other parents are in her exact position and weren't lucky enough to be able to get a hold of you uh, to do something about it? That's that's what's sad to me is there's probably plenty of other voiceless parents out there banging their heads against the wall for similar situations. Absolutely. It happens every day and at every level, whether it's a child with special needs or it's a a senior with special needs. I mean, it's everything, you know, er everyone out there. And and the fact that the systems which are in place for a parent to make a complaint and have it truly investigated when those systems fail, like how does Maggie and the other story just disappear? When the systems fail to protect our most vulnerable, we have a problem, especially when someone is raising a red flag and saying there's a problem. I I just, I, I, I just, I can't stand that. So back to Max's case here. So in November of 2019, Max's family filed a civil lawsuit against the school. The family accused the teacher, the two teachers who, who were holding Max, um, they claimed it was a takedown maneuver is what is quoted in the lawsuit by holding Max's hands behind his back dropping him to his knees and then forcing him face down. So certainly very a very aggressive Absolutely. Manner. It's use of force. I know. And I, I mean, he may have been, you know, a, a child larger for his age, but it, he's 13. Yeah. The El Dorado County District Attorney charged the three with involuntary manslaughter a year after Max's death. This is where I really need your help here, Josh. So even after charging them... The district attorney took this case to a special grand jury and got an indictment as well. And then in the indictment, the school was tacked on to the criminal charges. Why, as a prosecutor, would you charge and then go to a grand jury? Because it sounds like it's the same. They both got charged with the same thing. Right, right. So there's a couple reasons why you would go to a grand jury is either the case is so complex that because when you're charged with a felony, you, your first step along the way is what's called a preliminary hearing. And that's where all everybody gets together, the attorneys, the defendants, and they put on a case in front of a judge only, but they have to prove enough to that judge 
to say that the judge believes there's probable cause to hold them to answer at trial, right? That process in itself can be so complicated because perhaps you have several defendants, perhaps there's so many witnesses, there's a lot of moving parts, you might decide it's easier to go to a grand jury because at a grand jury, it's just the prosecutor there and the grand jury. And they're presenting the evidence, both they're supposed to be presenting the evidence for the prosecution and for the defense, but it's a far easier process. It can take place over several days. Uh, they can bring in witnesses in secret. It's also a, a reason for them to bring an indictment without anybody knowing it's happening. But in a case like this, we call it a superseding indictment. So they've cr they filed a criminal complaint. And then for whatever reason, and my suspicion is it might have just been that the case was dragging on too long. And perhaps they felt that there was just some uh, delay tactics on the part of the defendants, or perhaps they felt that if they really wanted to indict the the school itself, it was just going to be far too complicated to bring them in at that point. So they they can do this and it's rare. But while they have an open criminal complaint, they go ahead and do a grand jury anyways. It becomes a superseding uh, indictment. It becomes the charging document. And now you've skipped that preliminary hearing stage and you're going straight to trial. Oh, so if you have a grand jury indictment, right, you do not have to have a preliminary trial. Correct. The, the, the grand jury indictment acts as the probable cause determination. And then you skip that prelim stage and you go straight to trial. So they're in pretrial now. And that's it might be a way, like I said, for them to kind of fast track this, make a complicated case more easy and indict the the school as well. Thank you. That, <laughs> you learn something every day here on True Crime Daily, the podcast. I like glad, to say. Glad I could help. Thank you. So they have all entered pleas of not guilty, because remember, there were original charges on this, and they were ordered by a judge not to teach or work with children until these cases are resolved. That's a reasonable restriction, I think. However, according to a report by CBS 13 in Sacramento, they claim that one of the teachers has been employed as a special ed teacher in the Pollock Pines School District after the initial charges. So uh, I, we, we can't verify that. That is a report by CBS 13 in Sacramento, but I'm sure the authorities are fully aware yep. of this allegation. In April of 2020, there were some rumors that maybe there was going to be a plea deal. So that could have been the impetus to say, we're, we're taking this to the grand jury. I don't want this case to fall apart. I want to take this to trial. So it, it could be, as you suspect, why they went to the grand jury. So on Thursday, July 21st of 2022, the grand jury indicted the three, the administrator and the two teachers on involuntary manslaughter, along with the corporation that owns Guiding Hand School. The defendants are scheduled to appear in court on September 2nd for um, setting a trial. So yeah. as you said, moving forward here. And um, since then, Guiding Hands, which was the school for special needs, has been replaced with a similar school providing similar services, which clearly there's going to be a need for in that community. And I think that this is a fascinating case because it could have a chilling effect on other schools, both private and public as to how you deal with the restraint of a child. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and hopefully training and, and understanding that, you know, this is probably not your place to get, you know, people who are trained to restrain someone or have, have those people on campus. If it's really becoming an issue. Yeah. I, I hope you're, I hope a, 
a chilling effect and a correcting effect so that we avoid something like this. Absolutely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on social media. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now with what y'all are talking about. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Hey. All right. So this one is pretty interesting. We have kind of a half robbery here with a botched escape and a very memorable suspect. Uh, So now this man was taken into custody last week after he allegedly tried to rob a convenience store and then tried to flee from police on a bus. Uh, (laughs) I hope he had his bus pass ready. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I hope he had his dollar seventy five or whatever it is there in Tulsa. Oh, it's like up to two fifty three dollars. Where are you, Will? (laughs) Well, in Tulsa, I don't know. So how this all happened is Tulsa uh, Police Department said that the suspect, Oscar Garcia, went into the store. He was wearing a jacket and a hat and covered his face in a bandana. Now, this detail is really important because I'm going to show people this mugshot for our audio listeners. This is a guy whose face does not have like any clear skin that doesn't have tattoos on it, like just whole thing tattooed. Uh, oh, like I to, saw that photo. Yeah, it's a it's a very memorable photo. So anyways, yes. he goes in here with the jacket, hat, covered his face in the bandana, and he put a bag on the counter and demanded small bills from the cashier. Now, the clerk reportedly asked Garcia to repeat what he said. He didn't understand him. And then Garcia allegedly repeated small bills. So the guy starts getting really confused. And the clerk thought that Garcia said something about cigarettes. So he asked if Garcia wanted Marlboro Reds. And then Garcia said he would, in fact, take uh, the Marlboro 100s instead. Uh, Mm -hmm. So according to police, Garcia then became really frustrated with his inability to to sort of pull off this robbery. So he aborts the attempt. Uh, But before he left, he reportedly filled the bag with energy pills from the convenience store uh, and from the area around the cash register. He then allegedly paid for a pack of black and mild cigars and then ran. So police reportedly followed the bus he got on, and then he surrendered to officers at a bus stop, really uh, not leaving much up to chance there on on where your location is going to be next. Uh, So, like, this suspect, Garcia, had reportedly visited the Quick Trip convenience store earlier in the day, uh, and so he was recognized by this very distinct Appearance. One more time, I'm going to show that mugshot for people watching. Uh, so he was eventually booked on charges of strong arm robbery, wearing a mask in commission of a felony, which is a new one to me, and a gang related offense. I don't know if that's tied to the face tattoos, uh, but I'll have to look into that some more. So Tulsa County records, jail, jail records show that his bond is set at twenty five thousand. Uh, like I said, very memorable suspects. A lot of people have stuff to say about this. Adam S. said, this dude needs to call a casting agency. They got to find this man a role with a mug like that. I don't know what kind of role that is. Probably like either TV gang member or maybe supervillain. Uh, I could I could possibly see it. Uh, Rabbit Chipmunk said, can you describe the person? Uh, he looks like running ink. Um, which is <laughs> is pretty apt. Uh, Johnny D said, would you get so drunk that the other party people leave to get a fresh pack of Sharpies? 
Um, never had that happen to me, but it seems like an unfortunate situation. Uh, Taco said, don't know if he is the most identifiable or most camouflaged man in the world. I think it's going to be the former. I think most identifiable there. Um, you know, you, they may not be able to tell your facial features, but there's not a whole lot of people with a whole face covered in tattoos. Madeline M said, fleas on the bus. Now we know why he didn't get away. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why you wouldn't just go on foot at that point. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but oh, I, I'm yeah, I'm sure when he showed up and and they're booking him, they're like, oh, Mr. Garcia, you're back. I see you're back, Mr. Garcia. <laughs> and there's you're, you're, everybody knows him in Tulsa. Come you, on now. You're saying that wasn't the first time he had a run in with the law? Hard to that's my assumption that's yes. <laughs> my assumption uh, but that's going to do it for today's comment section as always if you want to get a chance to get your comment feature on the show you can do that over on our YouTube community page which we're looking for more subscribers we're almost at 5 million number we'd love it if you helped us out you can also leave your comments over on Instagram and Facebook yeah and we do read them I mean I, I try uh, my best to respond to many of you and those of you who are regulars know that I do <laughs> and I'm always uh, always welcome your comments your suggestions your thoughts um yeah yeah in fact we you know to hear Will, from you. someone suggested this so I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna toss it out there right now the possibility of maybe having one of our fans like, do a comment or something on the program. When we get to 5 million subscribers, we will pick a fan. How about that? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Every, everyone over that 5 million subscriber thing has a chance to to get it, get on this Wouldn't show. Wouldn't that be fun, yeah. you know, to be part of a discussion with one of the cases? I, I, I'd love it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People always have great comments, a lot to say on the cases. Um, we know that y'all are like really into true crime. So definitely. Yeah. Let's, de yeah. let's definitely have somebody on. <gasps> Look at that. Now, are you going to break it to our bosses that we just made this deal without their permission? <laughs> Shh, don't, tell them. don't tell them. Don't tell them. Bye, Will. Thank See you. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. We always love having you on. Where can people find you if they need an attorney or if they want to follow you on social media? And I know you do a lot of commentary also on a lot of uh, news and crime programs. Uh, thank you so much. I, this is fun. It's always a blast. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or check out uh, joshuaritter.com. Excellent. Fabulous. All right, Josh. And don't forget, Josh has got his own podcast called Sidebar. And, um, you know, new episode coming out Tuesday. Woohoo! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me at Anna G News on um, all social media sites. Subscribe to us, our website, you know, because you'll get a newsletter from us. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's kind of fun and we're expanding it. Get this podcast and any podcast that you like of ours, wherever you get your podcasts. And, um, you know, keeping it safe out there, everybody. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.